All right, Paul, in this episode, we're going to have a conversation about the role of white men in racial equity work and in the workplace. You know, something that listeners want to get out of this podcast and from going through this journey with us are concrete ways to be anti-racist and anti-sexist in everyday life. You know, I was catching up with one of my buddies who is a white man, and as oft happens when white men are with me, you know, he started asking me questions about race and current work being done and whatnot. And towards the end of that conversation, he was like, man, it's just such a big problem and I'm not doing enough and I don't know how to do more in my everyday life. And you know, I truly believe, and I've seen and heard from a lot of white men like this, that it's a sentiment that a lot of white men have. So where we are in our process, it's a good time to have a discussion around this. And it's not the last discussion we'll have. You know, we will never say, here are the five things you need to do and we're done, we're anti-racist. You know, it's an ongoing process. There will be multiple conversations. Also, as you and I, Paul, continue to learn and grow and as we continue to hear from more people. So let's dig into it. This is The Modern White Man, the podcast where myself, Paul Johnson, and me, Ken Lawrence, discuss how to be a modern white man who is anti-racist, anti-sexist, and understands his role in creating an equitable society. So the reaction that my buddy had is frankly natural on this journey. You know, going through history and doing identity work as we have done, it's kind of impossible to not have moments where it's like, wow, this is messed up. Like, this is a big problem. But let me say and assure you listeners out there that it's not like we've really been setting ourselves up to learn concrete action steps that we can eventually do down the line. No, this whole identity process that we have done, reckoning with history, unpacking our identity, are concrete steps in racial equity work. So you are doing it. You know, we need to check our privilege. We need to understand it. We need to get to a place where we can receive feedback with grace and value learning and growing. You know, we have to get to a place where we know we will make mistakes and that we still have a lot to learn. And we really can't get there and do impactful work without going through this process. So with our listeners, Paul, we're going to keep at it. I hope all of you out there keep at it as well, because this is concrete steps that you've been taking. It's truly important. I want to start with something that your friend said. You mentioned when you were talking to him, he said that he's not doing enough. Mm -hmm. To me, this is a sentiment that is embedded with undertones of capitalism and white supremacy. Mm. So if you're unfamiliar with some of the research that was done around white supremacy culture, I may have referenced it before, but there was some research that was done to look at white supremacy characteristics from a white dominant culture, particularly in organizations. And some of those that came out in that research really, I think, align with this sentiment of, I feel like I'm not doing enough. So a couple of them are perfectionism, quantity over quality, or just this idea of comparing yourself to, to other people. But the idea of not doing enough is something that is exhausting. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I, I see in other folks, a lot of activists, I feel it myself. Because it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to just simply even just to look back in our history. It's yeah. a lot to just take on, take in, 
you know, we could spend the rest of our lives reading about everything that's happened in history that isn't in the main textbooks, right? You're the history buff. And, yeah. you know, in last episode, I mentioned something, you know, with the Irish that you didn't even know about, right? right? There, there's just endless amounts of things that we can take in. So that right there feels like so much. And then you look at today and the uh, the amount of injustices, the amount of tragedies that we're seeing it just comes at us rapid fire. Like even as the verdict for the Derek Chauvin trial was being read, there was another African-American who was shot and killed by police. In this case, it was a young girl, Makia Bryant, who was shot and killed by police in Columbus, Ohio. Before that, it was Adam Toledo. It's it's like we just we can't keep up with the amount of injustices that are happening. It feels like we're just getting this rapid fire pelted with all these bad things. And of course, you know, of course, we we have immense privilege to be able to just be like, it sucks to hear about these things. Like clearly, we are not experiencing it. We are not directly affected by these things. But it plays into this feeling of not doing enough because there's so much to do. So it made me think of something I came across not long ago called the social change ecosystem. This was developed by someone named Deepa Iyer, and I apologize if I pronounced her name incorrectly, but the idea is that all of us play a role in social change. And, and I think this is really important for us to think about. So what she developed was uh, different roles. There are 10 different roles involved in this ecosystem. All of them play a specific part in advancing social change, and all of them are essential. I think what we all feel is a pressure to do it all, to be it all, or we compare ourselves to other and say, look at those folks who are, you know, on the front lines or protesting, who are got the bullhorns, and we think, oh, I don't do that, so I'm not enough, or I should do that, or, you know, I'm not doing research on racism, you know, maybe I should do that, or I'm not running for office, I don't have access to changing policies or laws. And so we, we have all these options of ways to get involved in activism. And what actually happens, I think, as a result of this is something called option paralysis, mm. which is where there's so many options. We get so exhausted from that that we just end up not doing anything yeah, at all. Right. So example of this is you go to the store and you all you want is a loaf of bread. Like you're, you're craving some PB&J. You go to the store, you go to the bread aisle, and what do you see? thousands of different bread right and, and you start looking at this one and that one and the ingredients and this one's organic that one's not organic this one's name brand it's not, and all of a sudden you're just like i i'm just too exhausted i'm just gonna stop at mcdonald's on the way home right yeah. so this is kind of what i think happens at, a, at an activist level of feeling like there's so much to do feeling overwhelmed by it all that we end up just getting flustered by it and we just kind of throw our hands up in the air and say i, I just don't know what to do yeah and of course, being white, we have that option, that it's even an option on the table that we can actually choose to do nothing. Whereas for folks of color, we know they have no option. They, Yeah, they have no choice. Right. I feel like you just looked into my soul <laughs> because this is, I mean, the I'm not doing enough thing is something that I really struggled with and something that I really have felt and I've started to get better at, but I still have. And that social change ecosystem is really good. Like, I'm really happy that you brought this to our and my attention, you know, because you're right. Not everyone can do everything. And you just mm -hmm. kind of take away individual strengths and individual identities yep. because depending on your strengths and identities and lived experiences, 
You know, you should be playing different roles. You shouldn't be playing all. The, there are going to be some roles you should not play, as yep. we'll, we'll talk a little bit about today. So that is something everyone should check out, Social Change Ecosystem. I just checked out, pulled up their website, and I need this in my life. You know, I had a listener who has listened to all of our episodes and was telling me, he's like, man, you know, you guys talk about the, the black-white binary and now Asian discrimination and how you want to do a better job of, you know, all the different types of racism and discrimination that exists. And he's like, then there's, you know, anti-Semitism. And he gave me an idea uh, for a topic on anti-Latinx discrimination. And he's like, it's just so much. He's like, there are, you could go down the line and he's like, you know, how do you address all of them? And I think you get that option perilous, option paralysis, paralysis. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. paralysis. Yes. and that that's how you get that is because yeah. instead of being like, okay, you know what, with my strengths, what I could do, I think I could do this bubble, this bubble, you know, maybe you have yep. two bubbles. That's really helpful for me too to think that way. Yeah, and, it, and sometimes it creates option paralysis. I think for some people, other people might create this sort of pinball effect. Mm. Or, or sort of this like what's trending today that's sort of the thing i'm going to focus on so there's a mass shooting against asian americans all right i'm going to turn my attention to asian americans oh we just learned you know more about the gender equity or, or the gender gap in pay oh i'm going to turn my attention over there or oh my gosh i just you know heard about some you know we still there's still kids in cages you know and so you find yourself pinballing yeah. from one of the other and it's just it's dizzying yeah so i think the option paralysis leads to just sort of this overwhelm and sort of this i can't choose so i'm not going to choose and then there's also this pinball effect of like i can't stick with one thing yeah. and what i think what's underlying this is white supremacy as an institution as a system wants this to happen it wants people, and I know I sort of like personify right, white right. supremacy sometimes. It's just helpful for me, but it wants people to be exhausted because when we are exhausted, what happens? We can't do it anymore. We can't fight the system. We give up. Hmm. We lay down and we throw our hands up in the air and say, it's just too much. Reconstruction. Right? Yes. Yeah. Right? It's, and fragility, right? Yeah. You know, and of course, as white people, we can do that because we're not being directly affected. You know, and that pinballing back and forth is very reactionary. And yeah. you started to, I think that that was brought to light with the Atlanta shooting and with people starting to really pay attention to racism against Asians, discrimination, violence. And there are a lot of folks who are like, this can't just be a reactionary you know, thing in the moment. And then when you do hear about the next thing, you forget about that. You know, and that was like George Floyd was such a, I mean, we were in the epicenter of it in Minneapolis, but it was a nationwide thing. It was a worldwide thing. Yeah. And that was the fear is like, we have to keep the momentum going. So to also think about this work and these efforts as sustained, it's a long-term process and you have to take it from a full comprehensive approach that will be helpful for actually making change. Yeah, and the pinball effect, it also means we're making very minimal impact. Because if we're pinballing from one thing to the other, we just kind of do little, little touch-ups. We're not really digging in deep to any of those things. This is the quantity over quality characteristic that I mentioned earlier of white supremacy. You focus on quantity and you might look woke because you're posting about every single little issue that's going on. Not little, I shouldn't yeah. say that, but every issue that's going on. And so you might feel good, oh, you know, I'm woke because I'm, I'm into everything going on and, and I'm you know, taking in all the information. 
But are you actually making deep, impactful changes in any of those things? Probably not. And if you are, you you literally are on a path to exhaustion. Yeah, right. In exhaustion, what that does, I think this is significant with white supremacy. Exhaustion prevents us from accessing our creative and imaginary side. Mm. I think that's a very critical part of our, our brain and a part of our human experience to dismantle white supremacy. Because we, especially us being white and male... We need all the imagination we can get to like imagine what a world would look like without these systems because we, we are so entrenched in these systems. It's just really hard to imagine what it would look like. I think it's for folks who are oppressed by the system, they can imagine it very clearly, right? Right. Because they, they, are, they are directly affected. They are victim to it. Right. But for us, we need to really access that creative imaginary side. Otherwise, we're just going to kind of go through the motions, which will just uphold that system. So the social change ecosystem map, we can maybe post in the notes of the podcast or, or share online, but but look it up, social change ecosystem map. Yeah, go to our uh, website. We'll post it there, the modernwhiteman.com. Yeah. So there's, like I said, there's 10 different roles. And I think the idea and what's really helpful to look at this is to, they each have their own definition. So I'll give just an example. You know, one is, is called a weaver. So a weaver sees the through lines of connectivity between people, places, organizations, ideas, and movements. Then there's experimenters. I innovate, pioneer, and invent. I take risks and course correct as needed. Then you have someone like a healer. I recognize and tend to the generational and current traumas caused by oppressive systems, institutions, policies, and practices. So I think about like a healer might be like a therapist. So I think if, if that is you, if that is your skill set, if that is your passion to heal people, do that. Mm. And don't worry about being a weaver or an experimenter or some of these others, like a frontline responder or a builder. You know, FOMO is a real thing, especially I think when we're seeing in social media, we see people going and, and protesting and, and all this other these other forms, very, very important parts of social change. We feel bad. We feel like we're missing out. We feel like we're not enough if we're not also doing these other things. And I used to feel that. Yeah. I used to feel really guilty. I used to feel really bad about myself if I if I didn't go out and protest. Yeah. And I, I I haven't, and I don't. And will I at some point? Yeah, I might. But I don't feel guilty about it because I know that again, if I spread myself out, if I try to be all ten of these roles. I'm not going to make an actual impact and I'm going to exhaust myself. Yeah, I have felt that as well. And that's nice to hear. You know, I see those protests too. The most recent shooting in the Twin Cities was Dante Wright in Brooklyn Center. That was like two miles from my house. And once again, right in our own backyard, we're, you know, the center of the country here in the Twin Cities. And, you know, there are people who are organizing these protests, marches, speakers that is their strengths and they're amazing and i was recently just at an event with the owner of pimento jamaican kitchen and rum bar and he was talking about how he has taken his company and he's from jamaica and he leverages like his community connectedness to be a what he calls a an instrument of liberation and the way that I could just see his strengths being mm-hmm. used to like be this person that connects with the community and brings the community together. Right. And it was inspiring. I'm like, you are leveraging your strengths, mm-hmm. right? And like, not everybody can do that. And not everybody should do that. Right. Like, I shouldn't watch that and say, I need to do that too. If mm-hmm. those aren't my strengths and I wouldn't be good at it and it would feel forced. 
Right. But also everybody should check out Pimento Jamaican Kitchen and Rum Bar yeah. because they have amazing <laughs> food and he does amazing work. So shout out to to him. <laughs> yeah, it, and we'll we'll always be hearing messages from other people of what we should be doing, and I think that is one of the more challenging things. I think it can be it can be minimized, and I know you're not on social media, so I'm sure that helps a lot. But you see what people are doing; it comes across your screen, and, and immediately you kind of think, "Well, I should be doing that." Look at the, what this person's doing, and they're sort of even you know either explicitly or implicitly saying like everyone else should be doing what I'm doing, right? And and I know they they, they have the best of intentions, but those who see it think, "Yeah, maybe I am falling short. Maybe I need to add that into my life." And, you know, what the challenge with that is, number one, again, you, you spread yourself too thin and it leads to exhaustion. But the second thing is your intentions aren't really in the right place, right? Like you're doing it more in response to either assuage some sort of guilt that you might have or to like literally just kind of answer the call be like, oh, this person shoulded me. You know, they, they said I should do this. And, and for us with white folks, with, with the guilt that we carry, that gets triggered quite a bit. You know, something like that can trigger that guilt and be like, I need to do something about this guilt that I'm carrying right now. And so I'm going to sign up for this or go to go to that or add this to my plate. And is it really about justice liberation or is it about addressing the guilt and shame that we're carrying? Yeah. You know, and, and, and this is why going back to what you said earlier, why it's important for us to go through an identity process, because we really need to address that guilt and shame that comes from our identity. Yeah. Because if we're constantly reacting to things based on guilt and shame, yeah, maybe we are doing something, maybe there's an outcome, but the intentions are more selfish, it's more self-centered, it's more about me than really about those that we're doing something for. Well, let's talk about that. What if well-intentioned white men who do want to help insert themselves into movements or diversity, equity, and inclusion work or racial equity work with their privilege and motives unchecked. So let's say they do even look at, you know, the social change ecosystem and they want to hop in a bubble or two and they haven't done identity work. They haven't checked their privilege and motives. How does that impact others? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I can speak from personal experience because I, you know, I worked in the nonprofit sector for a long time. It worked in a lot of jobs where I, I worked directly with predominantly African-Americans. And, you know, for me, I never really thought about or looked into sort of how my biases or how, you know, my, my racist ideas, my racist beliefs had an effect on the work that I did. I went into the work, admittedly, looking back with a, a white savior complex, sort of thinking like, these people need me. I need to come to their rescue. And also sort of this, you know, look at me, I'm such a good white person, sort of th that white exceptionalism, like because I'm doing this work, it makes me exempt from any sort of, you know, idea that I'm a racist or that, that I participate in racism. And so, yeah, I really think I, I entered, entered into that work. Obviously, there's some good intentions and, and some, some good behind it, but a lot of it was unchecked. A lot of it, you know, as far as my motives and how I carried myself in those, those spaces, I think one thing to bring up that, you know, really kind of changed the way I think about how I interact with other people, especially black and brown folks, was Resma Menachem's book, My Grandmother's Hands. Mm. He refers to white supremacy as white body supremacy. 
for him, he's a therapist, and for him, white supremacy and racism is all of it at at the core level is is somatic. It's body centered. Hmm. So he often uses the terms white body and black body, referring to people, or sometimes he refers to black and brown folks as bodies of culture. So he talks about race being a somatic experience. What is somatic experience? Yeah. So it's it's a bodily experience. It's something that you actually okay. feel in your body. And it's, it's sort of how, you know, we take in stimuli all the time and it creates an actual bodily experience, a reaction to what's going on. So he says that everyone suffers from racialized trauma. And so so this this reading this kind of just blew my mind because I've never heard of anything like this before. Mm. So everyone suffers from racialized trauma, including white folks, at some level. And he uses the term or the phrase blowing trauma through other people. So we have been traumatized based on the racial hierarchy and the trauma that has happened in our history. And that trauma lives in our body. So somatically speaking, lives in our body, exists in our body right now. And we blow that trauma through other people. So, So for example, he often says that an unsettled body causes other bodies to be unsettled so he believes in this interconnectivity of bodies that you know if you right now looked unsettled that would make me unsettled Mm. right empathy of a sort yeah exactly exactly so he talks about though when a white body is unsettled this is a cause for alarm for black bodies it either means that they are in danger black bodies are in danger either physically or psychologically So they really have two options. Number one, try to escape, try to get out of there. Or number two, make efforts to soothe the white body. But overall, the mere presence of a white body can cause increased stress levels for black bodies. And that makes sense, right? So an unsettled white body, what results from that? Historically speaking, and even current day when we we see police interactions, it results in violence. Mm -hmm. It results in something bad happening to the black body. So over time, black bodies, black folks have have been conditioned to do something about that, basically for protection. Right. Right. To survive. Right. And so essentially, when I come into a room, which I did many, many times in my work, and I was around African-Americans or black bodies, as, as Resma refers to, and if I was having a bad day, if I was stressed out, if I looked tense... That immediately, and mostly at an unconscious level, made other folks I was working with unsettled. Hmm. Uh, African Americans, black bodies, unsettled. And so they, through generations, have learned to cope with that, to try to, to soothe me, right? So they have to change the way they are sitting, standing, speaking, whatever it might be, in order to make sure that I don't act upon my unsettledness. This is super interesting. Just on the surface, even, it makes sense. We have talked a lot on this podcast, I feel like, about evolution and just the power of evolution and what passes from generation to generation. And the more generations, the more we physically, mentally... I mean, evolution just passes on both physical and mental things. And so the idea of if a white person is unsettled or feels defensive or what have you, that a black body, as Resma says, would kind of have this like survival instinct. I think on the surface that makes sense to me. And you can really apply that to the workplace. Like when, you know, in my past positions, I used to, I actually still do a little bit, but I used to co-facilitate 
racial equity trainings at in workplaces and i can just absolutely see this playing out yep I can absolutely see if I was doing an unconscious bias or a privilege training. I I experienced white people becoming defensive. I've experienced the uncomfortableness and shutting down of white people, often at the expense of the whole group kind of growing together. And then I've seen black and brown folks kind of try to remedy the situation. I've Mm -hmm. I've seen it. Mm Mm-hmm. So I, I can I can see that I, I, that point of if as a white man you and I go into these spaces having done our some identity work and it's an ongoing process but being able to to be comfortable receiving feedback kind of under starting to understand when to speak up when to listen when to support all those things like just having that base is monumental mm-hmm. and like a, a line that always sticks out to me from white fragility you know robin d'angelo was talking to a black participant in one of her workshops and was like you know what if you could say something unafraid to a white person without them becoming extraordinarily defensive mm-hmm. or like feel like they're being attacked and he just said it would be revolutionary hmm. you know and to think about that mm-hmm. like think if we got to a place where a black person or brown person could without the fear of a white person's reaction being like hey ken you know what you just said right there's like that's an example of like, a racist idea it made me feel like this if they could say that like knowing that i'd be like yeah thank you for telling me yeah mm-hmm. you're right and then having a discussion around that that would be revolutionary but that's not what happens. Mm-mm. White people, Mm-mm. the vast majority of white people, I'll say every white person that does no identity work mm-hmm. will become defensive and say, I'm not racist. That's not what I meant. You're taking it out of context and try to explain. And then, yeah, you can kind of see how mm-hmm. it's like, okay, survival mode, right? But the more people that do kind of check their privilege, check their motives, do some identity work, you can have those conversations and it yep. can be revolutionary. Yeah, this this is why something like stress management is so critical for white folks because it's incumbent upon us to create the conditions for that person of color to be open and honest rather than the other way around, which currently the expectation is that if you're a person of color, you're going to come to to me, a white person, and tell me something, you need to present it in a respectful, kind, soft manner you know yeah and this is a white supremacy characteristic right to comfort yeah right that you and i as white people have this right or entitlement to feeling comfortable all the time Mm. so the the idea is that it's everyone else's job to make sure that they maintain that comfort and so if they're going to come to us with something that's going to make us uncomfortable they need to do everything in their power to deliver that in a way that'll maintain that comfort. Right. That's got to change. Yes. Right. Totally. It's, it's got to be flipped on its head where you and I and, and all white folks need to learn to, to be self-aware of our bodies and when we are settled and when we're not settled and understand, first of all, that by default, if we are, and again, this is varying levels depending on where we're at in our work, but at some level, we're going to feel uncomfortable and unsettled around a black body. That is something, so back to this racialized trauma idea, that is something that has been conditioned to us and passed on through generations. So what was also sort of very insightful and revolutionary about Resma's work was that this idea that the reason why I'm reacting this way, the reason why I have racist ideas, the reason why I have biases, the reason why if I'm walking down the street and a black person's walking towards me, I start to tense up, 
that has been conditioned over time. Mm. And the reason why that's so important is because it's helped me understand that I did not go out of my way in my life to learn those behaviors, right? They were socialized into me, not only within the 35 years I've been alive, but generations before me. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So again, this is that, that slippery slope where I'm not saying, oh, then we can just be like, oh, you know, I have no, I play no part in this. No, that's not what I'm saying. What it has done for me is it's shifted my mindset from feeling like it's solely my fault, feeling like it's, I'm a bad person, feeling like I created this in me to, I've actually inherited this generationally. And I need to heal from it. Yeah. And when you when you go into a mindset of healing, then you then you're in a space of compassion and empathy and caring for yourself. Whereas for a long time in my life, I was in a space of punishment, self-flagellation, self-hatred, right? And and those two mindsets are incredibly different because when you're in that self-hatred, you sort of perpetuate that being unsettled all the yeah. time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and on edge. Right. But when I can get to a place of compassion towards myself, healing, then I can feel settled. I can feel comfortable in my own skin. And that helps settle other people yeah. around me. Yeah. And it, and knowing that doesn't victimize white people. To me, what it tells me is I have inherited something that I don't want in me. And so I'm going to try to get it out of me. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've never thought about it that way, but I like that. You know, in this other book on evolution and that I really like, the idea is that if you need to think of an enemy, think of natural selection as the mm. enemy. Because obviously natural selection gives you so so many things that, you know, that's why we're all living. But it, it gives you these these falsities that we've talked about a lot of them in this podcast that traditional traits of masculinity is going to help me in many ways, like showing anger and manliness, whatever. That's one example. But this too, of like, I have inherited all of this from this white body experience that I don't want. Mm -hmm. So if I look at it as like the enemy is I'm trying to make myself better. I have naturally just taken in these things that are either totally untrue or are totally unnecessary. But I have the wherewithal to control that. Yep. I just have to do the time to recognize it and then destroy it. Yeah, and, and Rosman talks about like trauma existed before he quotes 1619, which is I think when the slave trade started, yeah, right? The first ship of slaves landed in North America. Yeah, so he's like trauma existed before that, before the racial hierarchy. He says in his book, white bodies traumatize other white bodies before they traumatize black bodies. So I think that's another important thing to, to think about, that trauma is just something that has been in the, the history of our world. And white people learned trauma and torture from other white bodies. And then they just, when, when people came over to America, they just passed that on mm. or, or blew it through other bodies. That's that's the phrasing he uses. So they were traumatized. Think So that's I think that's important to think about too in our identity process for white folks. Yeah. Before we even, Europeans came over to America, we experienced lots of trauma. Right. We were escaping trauma, hmm. you know, so so we, too, were victim to trauma. And then, unfortunately, what happened was instead of healing from that trauma, which is, you know, what Resma says, that's what we need to do to break the cycle. We, quote unquote, healed by traumatizing other people. Hmm. And man, you know. And, and dang that's crazy that's that, like a is that epiphany level that's for epiphany you? <laughs> level. Whoa. 
I mean, that explain. I mean, human beings are flawed by yeah. nature. You know, there's no perfect human being. There is not one. There will never be a perfect human being. You know, which is okay. We don't need to be a perfect being. But doesn't that like of all our imperfections and things that we can see, like you, like that, that is a link to. Mm-hmm. You know, because we talked about our very first episode mm-hmm. on our journey, we talked about the creation of race when Ibram X. Kendi in Stamp from the Beginning made the argument, uh, gosh, what was the year? 1460. Just make up a just make up a number. All I'm right, not let's gonna say 14, I have no six, idea. All right, listen all right, listeners, fourteen sixty four. Send emails to Ken Lawrence, <laughs> not me. Yeah. Uh, I'll have to check that. But like so let's say it was in the fourteen sixties. That is not a long time ago. Like, right. he, like human beings have been around for a long, 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 yep. long time. So if you even think about the creation of race, I mean, that is a really powerful insight yep. we got from Resma Menachem that we have all had this trauma as human beings mm-hmm. and we have created a racial hierarchy not that long ago. Yeah. It was an outlet for that. Yep. That is super interesting. Yep. Yeah, gosh, it's just too bad that we've just created all these social constructs and, you know, ways to kind of pass on trauma. Race happens to be one of them. Gender is one of them. All these, like, differences that we have. Man, that's, that, I mean, that's, I haven't thought about that pre-racial creation trauma that everybody has. I mean, it's really interesting. Are you, are you ready for another epiphany level thing? I'll try can to you, handle Can you it. handle this? I'll try. I'm ready. So the other thing he, he says is that over time, trauma loses context. So when you and I walk into a room or encounter another, like a black body in public and we tense up, right? Which is, I think, something a lot of white folks, whether they want to admit it or not, happens, Mm -hmm. right? Like we tense up, we start to get vigilant, we start to get nervous. That is the result of trauma that came from generations ago, but it's lost its context. In that moment, we're just like, why am I nervous? Why am I tensing up? This is just another human being. There's no threat here. So to us in that moment, the context is lost because we're just like, what's wrong with me? You know, and we get we're like, what's wrong with me? And we can even get to this sort of like, I'm a bad person. It's like, what the hell's wrong with right. me? Why am I tensing up? This And this is even someone I know. This is my coworker, mm. right? But it is trauma that has lost its context over time because it's, it's trauma that has passed over generations from our ancestors. All of that was passed on to us to this day. Hmm. And I know there might be some listeners that'd be like, ah, that's that's hogwash, right? Hmm. But I really believe it's true. And, and I really think it is something that is a learned behavior that's passed on to the point where we're sitting down in a meeting and our coworker next to us who's black and they sit next to us and even just a little like flinch. Right, even just a little micro movement like a flinch is part of that historical trauma, and and then for that that coworker, they see that flinch and they're like, oh, I, I got to be careful here, because wow. they know they know that we can weaponize that trauma, we can weaponize that fragility, and that's why I know some people criticize Robin D'Angelo and say like white fragility is even a fragile term. They say white fragility is actually white violence. Because we know, as we've seen in examples like the woman in the park, she was experiencing that trauma response to a black man just walking through a park. Can you give our listeners context who don't know of this? Yeah, so so I, I don't know the names off the top of my, yeah. my head, but there is a woman walking her dog in New York, I think it's New yeah, York Central City, park, Central Park. Yeah. She came across a black man who was birding early in the morning. All he was doing is walking around birding. 
This woman came across this black man and immediately tensed up. I think I think he approached her because the dog wasn't on a leash. And I think he just simply was saying, can you please put the dog on the leash? And she immediately saw him as a threat and literally threatened to call the police. And I think she said something to the effect of like, I will tell the police that black man is threatening me, something like that. Mm-hmm. So what she was experiencing in that moment was that trauma out of context and that learned trauma and that learned threat mm-hmm. in that moment. And he wasn't even doing it. He was just walking right. around, right. right? So this is this is when it can become weaponized because he that, that man knew. And you can see in the video, too, he was trying to explain himself, calm her down, right? Because he knew that if she did call the police, there was a possibility he, he would throw him into jail. Or, yeah. yeah, like at least not believed. And Correct. She be, and yes. she would be believed, yep. given the benefit of yep. the doubt. Yeah. So I so I know that that's an extreme example, but it is something that any of us and I think we need to be careful of white exceptionalism and say, "Oh, I'd never do that." But you never know. You might be coming off a bad day, you might be extra tired and a black or brown person comes out of nowhere out of the corner of your eye and you react, right? Mm-hmm. I think we none of us should be say we're above that. Mm-hmm. So for our listeners and for us and for you and me, like I said, it is it is so important for us to learn how to settle our bodies and to heal from this trauma and think about and be aware of when are we settled, when are we unsettled, what are, what are our triggers, when are we going to be in situations when there's people of color on. This is going back to what we talked about earlier. I wish so much I would have read this book before I did some of the work I did because I know a little bit of some of the harm I may have caused or did cause towards people of color in those moments of where their presence caused me to feel unsettled and feel nervous and feel tense and what that may have done to them. But there's millions of incidences I don't know the harm I caused. And I don't know that because no one told me, right? Right. Because people of color know that that would be dangerous, right? To come to me and, and say that. There was maybe one or two times when someone did do that. And the one time it happened, I remember they came to me and sort of did the like, you know, they came to me very calmly you know, said like, I know you didn't mean to do this. And, you know, and they knew what they were doing yeah, in that right, moment. They right. knew like we are going to a white body and maybe they weren't thinking in these terms, but they've known this is a group of African-American folks. They knew how to soothe me or how to keep me calm. Mm-hmm. In that moment, I had no idea like what was going on, yeah, but that's yeah. certainly what was going on. A real quick break here as we are in the midst of this important discussion to tell our listeners that we have a new way to connect with us so we keep these important conversations and learnings going. We have a new website available, www.themodernwhiteman.com, where you can learn more about our work, read blog posts with topics revolving around the continuous work of being anti-racist, anti-sexist, and our role as white men in creating equity. And you can subscribe to our newsletter. It's a new way to receive updates on new podcast episodes, new blog posts, and various relevant topics and future ways to get more involved. And also, it's easier than ever to get in contact with us. You know, we love hearing feedback and ideas from listeners. So be sure to check out that website and subscribe to that newsletter. This is such a good conversation linking our identity work we've done so far and linking that to work, the workplaces, examples you're giving in meetings. So one is settle your body. So that is saying being kind of calm, open, not defensive. My understanding of that, right? So I think that that's really important for all of us to know in doing this work. 
also the idea of when to speak up, maybe when to step back, when to help Mm. raise other voices. That's another thing that we can do every day. Mm. So when to speak up, when to step back, I really do think this is a big question for white men. White men have been internalized to always speak up, share their ideas. That's how you get ahead. People of color, women have been internalized to seed space. And so another thing that we can do is kind of recognize when to speak up and when to step back and when to help raise voices of others and provide space for others to speak up. This is something that I have definitely worked on and tried to work on. I am somebody, a guy that like will go into a meeting and I will have a lot of ideas and I will share those ideas. Mm -hmm. Like I am not even close to shy. I even know that some of my ideas might be dumb, quote unquote, like, or not possible, but I don't care. Like I, Mm -hmm. like, like I'm going to put them out there. And that's sometimes how some of the best ideas are, are made because you put a crazy idea out there and it's like, that's not possible. But like a part of that's kind of interesting. And then you hash out, but that is an identity thing. That is something as a white man that has been internalized. As we've Mm -hmm. talked about, we have been internalized where that's okay. Women, people of color, historically through generations don't have that. So like one thing that our listeners can do is recognize that mm-hmm. what I ask myself, like there's no black or white answer here, but like things I've done, I ask myself, am I talking too much? Like, yes. that, like that's a good question to start with, right? Am I in this room with a bunch of women and people of color? Like I hope I am. I hope I work at an organization that isn't a room full of white men. Mm. But even if, and the reality is, maybe this room is majority white men or a lot of white men. Are white men the only ones speaking up? You can ask yourself, what's the time distribution? Are you speaking up too much? And then there's like this idea of like if women or people of color are quiet in meetings, like giving them space, be like, hey, how about mm-hmm. you, Nancy? Can you share your idea? Like, I don't know if I'm, I'm totally on board. Like there should maybe be, you know, nobody likes being called out. A, right. somebody like me, I zone out a lot too. So like <laughs> someone's like, Ken, what do you think? I'm like, oh. <laughs> so um, I don't know if you should, should do that, but like maybe setting ground rules yeah. going into meetings. So you can be like, hey, everybody, like I suggest we set some ground rules like, Everybody has time to speak. We kind of go around, and if anybody has been trying to get a word in and can't, um, we want to give everybody a chance to speak before a topic moves on. Um, has everyone had equal time? Like, think about the time that you're you're given. Like, those are things that you can do before mm-hmm. meetings. I've done that with companies, and it's worked out really well. And people can pass if you don't have mm-hmm. something to say. That's fine, but giving everybody the opportunity. I don't know, that links a little bit to like your presence. Mm -hmm. And if difficult conversations are coming up, let everybody speak. Are you really worked up? Are you kind of coming across as, because I get really excited too, as maybe our listeners have picked up on a few times. (laughs) Like, how does that come across? Does that put some people on the defense? I don't know, Mm -hmm. just some ideas. Yeah, I love that. Those those are really great ideas. And and meetings is something that all of us are in probably too much. But yeah, I think historically has always been something that is largely unstructured, right? And when anything is unstructured, the default goes to those who have the power and the privilege in the room, right? So for you and I, and I bet there's moments too, and I've been there where I'm talking, I even have the thought like, oh, I'm talking too much. I'm going to stop talking. And there's just silence across the board. Yeah. And I'm like, 
to me that's like oh that's permission for me to just keep talking mm. like that's not necessarily true yeah. right and and I've, I've i've definitely been victim to that to think that well i did my due diligence i said all right i'm done talking anyone else have anything to say and no one speaks up and to me i interpret that as well no one has anything to say mm. When in reality, it means people are afraid to speak up mm. or they don't feel comfortable speaking up or they don't feel safe speaking up or I've created a precedent that it's just me talking and, and no one else. And so people are just kind of defeated and be like, well, I know how this goes, how these meetings go. Right. So what's the point of me speaking up? So right. you really you really have to be careful about that and, and create a more inclusive, equitable approach. I think what some people do too is they have people write down, like ask a question and write down answers on a, yeah. on a scrap sheet of paper. You know, that way some of the introverts can be engaged or those who don't aren't necessarily external processors. But, you know, one of the things I've heard, you know, it's kind of what makes a great leader, period, is someone who asks really good questions. Mm. What, what I've experienced and I think what a lot of white men definitely experience is that we like to talk first, ask questions later yeah. or not at all. Yeah. Right. Like we want to be heard. We want our hypo- hypotheses to be heard or our ideas to be yeah. heard. And we're, we're not as good at asking questions. I think that's a male thing, too. Yeah, I think um, that's true. Yeah, to, to kind of exert our ideas and, and to be dominant in the, you know, a statement feels more dominant than a question, mm-hmm. right? And that fits more into this patriarchal male-dominant society. And a question feels, I don't know, for some reason it feels less of that toxic masculinity male-dominant thing, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so I think we've been conditioned to say bold statements mm or be heard rather than to ask good questions to vote conversation. I think that's a great point. And, and also asking for feedback is it yep. is a tough thing to do. Yep. And I can tell you the more and more you do it, the easier and easier it becomes. Yep. And then you really kind of get to a point where you enjoy it. I struggled with feedback mm-hmm. when I was in my young twenties. Like yep. I was a, I was like, just kind of thought everything I did was, pretty good <laughs> of course <laughs> so, so why would you need feedback <laughs> so when i got feedback i was like what <laughs> but no it's, no, it's true like, though but like so that was a such an an area where i've really grown a lot with and and it was intentional and i've realized like i'm sure a lot of that was internalized yeah. Yeah, it's who I am. Not all white men are confident. You know, I'm not saying I'm I'm not, I'm not like confident every day, but you know, every second of every day. But to get to a point where I've seen like, okay, Ken, you have to be better at receiving feedback. Mm-hmm. And then I got to a point where I asked it. And then I had a team and I had a team of people of color and I asked them for feedback a lot about my own performance as like a manager mm-hmm. and my own performance uh, well, I worked at a nonprofit and we did racial equity work every day. So like we talked about stuff more openly than other yeah. places of work, but I'd be like, you know, how's the dynamic? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, being really open about I'm a white leader and, yeah. you know, um, I want to make sure white male leader, you know, I want to make sure I'm inclusive. I don't, I want to make sure I'm not using this privilege in a way that that isn't right. Mm-hmm. And like going in and creating those relationships, like I can tell our leaders, you know, that process for me has been 10 years and just it, it, yeah. it, it's so hard. And then it becomes a little easier, easier, easier. Yep. And now it's just it feels so good. And if somebody yep. gives me feedback that's negative, I'm like, thank you. Like yes. if you can get to a point where you're thanking somebody for negative feedback, you are really making some strides. 
Well, what you're talking about, I feel like, is this journey from fragility to resilience. Mm. And it really is a journey. It really takes practice and it really takes work. And it's something I feel like is essential for all white people because we, we do need to get to a place where we're able to enter into or be in or be thrust into uncomfortable positions and be able to keep our body settled, right? At the same time, I don't I don't like the saying, there's a saying that goes around a lot, like we need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I don't like that saying because mm. I, I don't think we'll ever hmm. get to a place of comfort. And I also think it reinforces the idea that we have a right to comfort. Mm. I don't think the saying intentionally does that, but I think it, it reinforces and perpetuates idea, this white supremacist idea that we have a right to comfort. And if we don't feel comfortable, there's something wrong. So I think that at, at any level, we'll always feel some sense of discomfort, and that is okay. So I think we need to be okay with being uncomfortable, I think is, mm. is more, yeah, it's better. more, is, apt. Is more apt. Yeah. yeah. But that takes lots of practice, yes. as, as you have talked about in that example. And sometimes if for us who are white, because we are accustomed to comfort, because we are very comfortable in our bodies, very comfortable in this country, we kind of have to seek out discomfort, as you did, right? Like, yeah. there was nothing stopping you from, like, think about it. There was nothing stopping you from from not asking for feedback in that position, right? Right. I'm assuming this was probably just something you did because you knew it was good for you, knew it was right. I don't think you ever would have been fired or reprimanded for not soliciting feedback. Right. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So because we are in a system where like our comfort is as white folks is prioritized and, and, and normal. So, you know, white, white fragility, the idea of white fragility, the book, super insightful. And I don't want to say, but, but, and we, we also need to know what we're working towards. Right, which I think is white resilience. Mm. And resilience happens when we are out of our comfort zone and in discomfort, and we're able to stay in that, be present with that discomfort, and still be able to stay settled, stay grounded, stay present, stay engaged. Will we feel uncomfortable? Absolutely. Yeah, it's part of it. It's part of it. But as you and I have talked about, I think earlier, like, we went through many stages of discomfort in our identity journey. And now, you know, when we get called out, I think, yeah, I remember talking about this in an early episode. The way I feel in my body, so somatically speaking, if someone calls me out is way different than the way I would have felt 10 years ago. Yep, Do same. I still feel uncomfortable when someone calls me out? 100%. Yeah. But because I've worked on that resilience over time, which is being mindful of my body, making sure that I stay settled, making sure that I stay curious, making sure I'm listening to the person, making sure that I stay engaged, that takes work, right? And if we want to get to a place where we are resilient instead of fragile, we need to welcome those opportunities when there's discomfort and we need to seek it out. I really like the word resiliency and working towards resiliency. And for our listeners out there, some of you may be leaders. Some of you may be on teams. Most of you are working, I'm sure. I know we have a few listeners that are retired, but most of us are in the workplace. And again, this identity work, to be able to continue to work on that towards resiliency, because I like how you say we need something to work towards. And being able to maybe in your next meetings or check-ins or whatever it is, you know, this is a way to be anti-racist. This is a way to be anti-sexist every day. And to think about our place on the social change ecosystem, like where are your strengths 
specifically for tasks of what mm -hmm. to do. Having a base of this kind of identity work to do that is really important. You know, we have a big list that we didn't even get to. Like this is a <laughs> like this is a conversation that we're going to continue to have with different examples and things that we can do to truly every day, big and small. But really, it's all it's all big. Like like you know, you can change behaviors. That's big. You, you change the way that communications at work goes, it's big. You start with these individual interactions, checking your body language, yeah. checking your reactions. Am I kind of reacting differently to people of different races? Like, let's break that down. I want to break that trauma that's inside of me. I want to break that down, right? That's a step, a step, a step. Yep. And then you can get, let's say you, you make progress with your team, you make progress in meetings or something, bring it to the next level at the organization. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm working at not a nonprofit right now, but at a company that you know does good community work. And I'm like to the point where I've been inching along and I'm now kind of like, what's our overall strategy? You can start to have those conversations. You know, it's, it's a process and understanding your place in that that's important. And like another thing we'll talk about later we have on our list is what kind of leadership should you bring in those spaces? You've said in the past, I'm not going to go to my company and be like, I want to lead our, our racial equity work, right? That's not my place. That's not our place as white men. We can be a leader in that work, mm -hmm. but we need to co-lead. We need to have people of color, women leading that stuff as well. It calls in a question of what does it mean to lead? And I yeah. think we, in, in yes. specifically in the context of yes. DEI work, we need to redefine what leadership Good is. Good point. Yep. You know, especially with our history as white men, we've been leading this country from the beginning of time. And when we think about the first thing that comes to mind with leadership is being on top of everyone, ahead of everyone, telling everyone what to do. And I think that's a antiquated, or at least not a relevant definition of leadership that works for white men in equity space. Mm. But can we still be leaders? Do we even call ourselves leaders? Yeah, right, I don't know. Right. What's I, that I, definition? I like that point. Yeah, I think we're still exploring that. Yeah. But regardless, we need to, if we find ourselves at least in a position of power where people might call us a leader because we have that positional power, we need to be careful about how we respond to having that position and how we define leadership or redefine leadership. Yeah, that, Paul, I like. I want to have that conversation at a future episode. Absolutely. I like that a lot. So until next time, let's keep learning, stay humble, and do the work. Thank you for listening to The Modern White Man. Please connect with us on our website, themodernwhiteman.com, where you can learn more about our work, read blog posts with topics revolving around the continuous work of being anti-racist and anti-sexist, and subscribe to our newsletter to stay in the loop with various relevant topics and future ways to get more involved. As always, if you are enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and share, both individually and on social media. That's how we get the most traction. After all, the more white men that have these conversations, the better.